Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love this song so much. Here's here's the one thing that's wrong with Thousand Dollar Wedding by Graham Parsons off his 1974 album Grievous Angel. There's no way a wedding is $1,000. This song doesn't hold up, man. Not nowadays. You can't get married for $1,000. Dude, I was a wedding DJ. The DJ alone for three-hour wedding, $775. But God damn if that song isn't perfect. It's number 425 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge. The 500 with Josh Adam. My guess. That's me, the King Cadougal. How all you doogly spooglies doing out there in quarantine land? Thank you for joining me on the only podcast that's going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. I say it every week. I hope you guys are comfortable wearing your night pants, your comfy clothes, hanging out with your loved ones, socially distancing. You can hang out with your dogs. You can say hi to your neighbors, but do not touch a motherfucker. Um, Also, I was just talking to Peter, the one and only. He grew his beard back. Listen to the music, guys. I mean this. If you are feeling depressed during this time, feeling alone, feeling isolated, first thing you need to do, make a gratitude list. Say, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I got shelter. I got food. uh, My family's not sick. You know, I've got television, whatever the fuck it could be. And if that doesn't get you out of your funk of why you're feeling sad and isolated, then listen to music. I do it every day. I put my headphones on. I listen to Graham Parsons, this record. If this doesn't bring you out of a funk, I don't know what will. And I put my headphones on and I just walk outside with my dog and it feels great. So me had an idea about making like kind of like an uplifting quarantine playlist for you guys. I say do it. Man, put together the songs that make you happy. These records, dig in. Music will soothe the savage beast. Also, guys, let's do Instagram stories this week. We haven't done them in a while. I want you guys to take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500. Tag me at Josh Adam Myers. Tag at the 500 podcast. Tag at Spotify. Tag the guest that is on it and I want you guys to share them on your Instagram stories give me a 24 hour ad and I'll love you for it or even to make it better I want you to take a picture 
of the way you are dressed in your quarantine comfy outfit and then tag the same shit I just said and post it, guys, to your Instagram stories, man. Let's get the word out. Let's get the music out there. And let's dig into what this album is this week because it was a doogle. Released on January of 1974 on Reprise Records, this is the self-produced second and final record from country blues rock and self-described cosmic American music singer-songwriter guitarist, (laughs) Jesus, how much shit did he do? And pianist, Graham Parsons. Ingram Cecil Cooper III was born on November 6, 1946. He's a Scorpio in Winter Haven, Florida to a decorated World War II flying ace father and a mother who came from money. Graham's grandfather was a citrus fruit magnet, so that motherfucker had some loot ducats. Graham's mother was depressed and both his parents were alcoholics. Okay, now if you think this is depressing now, I am going to say to you, go ahead and skip about 90 seconds because this shit gets dark. In 1956, the already musically inclined 10-year-old Graham saw Elvis Presley in concert, and that set him on his course. Tragically, when Graham was 12, his dad committed suicide a couple days before Christmas, which devastated him. Later, when his mother married Robert Parsons, Graham took his last name. By 16, he was attending and often failing in several prestigious schools, while also playing in rock and roll cover bands. Soon, he turned from rock to the new, folky sound. But in 1965, everything fell apart when his stepfather was caught in a cheating scandal and his mother died of cirrhosis from her drinking on Graham's high school graduation day. Dear God, like it makes sense why he was a drug addict. Uh, And I don't mean that as like a knock to him. Like, you got pain in your life, you do drugs. That's a way to handle it. Don't. If you're out there and you're feeling sad, don't do drugs. Try fentanyl once, but that's it. Only do it once. That same year, Graham got into Harvard University to study theology, which is where he first listened to Merle Haggard and seriously got into country music. After one semester, he dropped out and formed the International Submarine Band, his first country rock group. From there, he joined the jangly folk rock band, The Birds, and changed their direction to country rock. With that fame, he left to form the Flying Burrito Brothers and merged his country rock with soul and R&B. But after some success and critical acclaim, Graham was kicked out due to his rapidly growing substance abuse. Despite a few false starts to a solo career, including Parsons spending time hanging out with the Rolling Stones and marrying his much younger girlfriend, actress Gretchen Burrell, Graham finally began his debut in 1972. He found a young folk singer named Emmy Lou Harris to be his partner in classic country duet style. 1973's GP was critically well-received but commercially disappointing. After a shaky tour, he got ready for a follow-up. Once again, Parsons and his duet partner, Emmylou Harris, were to be joined by a bunch of Elvis Presley's TCB band. But two weeks before the tour started, Graham's Laurel Canyon house burned down from a lit cigarette, which led to his separation from Gretchen. Despite Graham's ongoing substance abuse, he rebounded during these sessions, which are comprised of some new and old originals and some covers. 
After the album was mixed, he headed down to Joshua Tree National Park in SoCal to recuperate with some friends. It was there on September 19, 1973, that Graham died of an overdose of morphine and alcohol at the age of 26. Grievous Angel came out four months after his death, and despite being a critical smash, only went to number 195 on the Billboard 200 chart. And that's the story, Fleece Army, of how a Harvard dropout, drug addict, alcoholic, self-destructive trust fund kid became a pioneer of country rock. A sound that ruled the early 70s with artists like the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, and then we're talking about the shit we fuck with today. Wilco, Ryan Adams. The shit that blows my mind more than anything is that Graham is still, to this day, not in the country or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I have a guest that 100% is in the Comedy Hall of Fame. The one, the only, Mr. Tommy Chong. You guys know Tommy as being one half of Cheech and Chong. The guy is a living legend. And my producer chased him down in a vegan restaurant and got him booked on the show. All before the quarantine, of course. Also, uh, side note, not only was I super high and him super high when we did this, but a half hour before we actually recorded the podcast, Jeremiah, my producer, had to teach Tommy and his wife Shelby how to download Google Chrome so we could use Zencaster because they're recording at their house and I'm recording at mine because of the coronavirus and all the shit that's going on in the world. And I'm on the other line, but I can hear everything. Nothing, and I mean nothing is more adorable in the history of my life than listening to JT teach Shelby how to download Chrome and get the recording on. I wish I could have had that recorded. I would have presented that to all of you and we would have enjoyed. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow our Facebook groups, The 500 Podcast with Jam and The 500 Podcast fan page. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, y'all, another left to say, but here we go. With number 425 out of 500 with Graham Parsons, Grievous Angel. My love for you was never misery. One more time, you said, Tommy Chong. My skiba do is skiba deba I do this for every guest, and I don't think I've ever felt more of a connection with a person while doing that. <laughs> well, it kind of flashes me back to my bad acid trips. <laughs> <laughs> they all had, for some reason, there's always a guy that sounded like a garbage disposal at every acid trip I ever experienced. All right, so. No, no you, 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 know, you know what it is now? What? It, it's, that, it's that guy, you know, when you go to a party and all of a sudden that guy brings out the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guitar dude at the party? 
<laughs> you know, the guitar, and no one really asked him to. He was just dying to get a crowd so he could sing the songs that you never heard before and never wanted to hear again. <laughs> yeah, but that dude fucks, bro. <laughs> that dude, women, and, and So you dig. have to tell whoever you're talking to, you have to say, uh, let's go outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the keg's over here around back. Let's just, you know, Tony's doing yeah. his thing. Let's get away. Let me ask you this. Um, let me ask you this. So... We we asked you to do this. My producer like tracked you down in some vegan restaurant, and somehow this happened. Yes, but you actually played a show with the Flying Burrito Brothers, didn't we? You? Did How, tell me about that. Yes, we did. We did, and then they became the birds or the uh, eagles or some bird or the vultures or one of those guys. They started out as the Burrito Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he started the Burrito Brothers, then he joined the Birds, uh, and then you have Graham Parsons doing Graham Parsons. But tell me about, like, how you got into Graham Parsons. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I didn't know it was Graham Parsons for years. I always thought it was Don Henley. Really? <laughs> That's his voice, you know, the kind of, there, there's a, a sort of like a, a similarity. I, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy that... Uh, I hear tunes. I remember the tune. I remember the everything about the tune, but I can never remember who sang it. You know, yeah. it was one of those kind of things, you know. And I, I was never an album buyer. You know, I would just, uh, it would be whatever, whoever I was with at the time and, and listening to their uh, record collection. Sure. And, and, you know, because being a musician yourself, you know, you're not, you don't have the luxury of, of collecting other people's stuff that if you, if you do have that luxury, that means you're not working, but if you're working like we did, yeah. you know, you never really had time. So it was a matter of, uh, just the voice, uh, Parsons voice is just, it's so distinctive, you know, and the lyrics, oh man, because you, I'm another guy that, you know, I'll listen to lyrics if I have to, you know, if I have to learn a song. And, and and that's that's the connection that I got with him. I really didn't understand the lyrics. I just love the sound of his voice. I love the music. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, if you look at this album, especially just on the surface level, like on my first listen to it, I was just like, all right, so this is just some like country rock bullshit. Like, I don't you know, I don't know why it's on the list. And then I really dug into this reading the lyrics and and pairing it with the emotion I was experiencing behind the melodies, and I was like, "Oh, wait, this changes everything." Like, I completely understand it why does. this record's on here. So, so tell me about when you first heard this album specifically. Do you remember what was going on in your life? Well, actually, uh, let's see, we were. It was years ago. We were uh, Cheech and I were on the road, and uh, I think I think we just happened to. Uh, he hit a hit a spot where you know that his album was playing everywhere we went you know and uh, it took a quite a, quite a few years before we decided who it really was yeah. cheech is a little different better than i am because he's got a photographic memory you know he probably told me many times who it was but i like i said i thought it was you know i could get henley and and felder and all these guys it was all just mixed the music that was on at the time you were just like oh it's this song again i don't even know who this is yeah but that's right that's yeah. right exactly exactly and see i grew up country 
myself, you know, I had no choice, you know, because I grew up, you know, in the forties, fifties when I was a, a kid and, uh, and there was like one radio station in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And as you can might imagine, it would only play uh, country. And, and I think they called it country and Western back then, but it was all country. And it was like Roy Acuff original, the original country, Hank Snow was a big, big deal. And all those Western guys, you know, cowboys. And then uh, when I was a kid, again, we'd go to movies and it would be Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. And, and I love the movies because every, you know, one of those, uh, those early movies, they always took time out to, to introduce the band and play a song, yeah, you know, yeah, and and so that was always, you know, that's and and then uh, then I started playing uh, backup guitar when I was eight years old for uh, a fiddle player because I was the only guy in the neighborhood that could play uh, backup <laughs> guitar, and uh, and so I I I I'm a country guy from way way back, but more out of necessity than out of taste, you know. Because once I got it, once I grew up and, you know, and once I discovered black, you know, R&B, well, yeah. that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, <laughs> I, I got to ask, what was the first like black artist that you finally saw and how old were you? Uh, well, Chuck Berry changed my life. Yeah, I could have, dude, you know, going, changed everybody. Going from like Hank Williams jambalaya to fucking Chuck Berry, you'd be like, all right, jambalaya, you can shove that jambalaya up your ass, dude. But no, 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 no. The thing is, we you never, you never would, took one over the other. No, what it was, it was, uh, it was the guys that I hung with, you know, I because I got involved in dancing, you know, like jive and, you know, and, and that was what we did back then. You know, we'd go to community dances. And and if you knew how to dance, then you got to hang out with some real foxy chicks, you know, ladies. And so, and then the best dancers were the black girls. And then I, so I got into the black crowd through the dancing. And then the black guys turned me on to rhythm and blues. You know, it wasn't even being played anywhere in Canada. You know, the, the porters would bring up, through the trains and they would bring up the records from the, from the States up to Canada. And so when we started playing, uh, when we put our R and B band together, it was, uh, we were, everybody thought we were original because no one had ever heard that music before. And so Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and, uh, and, uh, you know, I like the stones, yeah. the stones and the Beatles, you know, I, I, that's, that was, I, I was a little ahead of those guys, but, that that that's same music taste you know yeah. like the like the stones you know that mick jagger you know he he thought he was black for many years <laughs> you know and he tried to dance like uh james brown but it, he was so bad that he developed his own style <laughs> yeah 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 and then you know it's funny the lead singer of midnight oil ripped him off even made it even squigglier <laughs> made it even squigglier yeah yeah. <laughs> and they're just trying to emulate the black Dan uh, James Brown. They're trying to dance yeah. like James Brown, you know, doing all that little little stuff. But uh, but so years went by. Then we started playing gigs and and uh, Tony Joe White. Remember Tony Joe White? Yeah, man. The singer. Yeah. Uh, kind of a cowboyish kind of singer, and then uh, uh, Waylon, Waylon Jennings and uh, and uh, 
Christ, I can't think of his name right now. Merle Haggard? Yeah, Merle Haggard and those and Johnny Cash. Yeah. I was a big Johnny Cash fan because Johnny was such a, a stoner. <laughs> Hey, everybody. So you guys have probably heard me talk about how I've been in bands my whole life. Uh, I love writing songs and performing in front of crowds. Uh, Just like with comedy, as a musician, it can be kind of hard to cut through the noise and really stand out as an artist. I feel like half the music projects I've been in have ended just because we couldn't figure out the answer to that eternal question of how do we get people to hear us? But then again, that was before there was DistroKid. DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that brings your sound to the masses. It's a one-stop shop for getting your songs on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many more. What's Deezer? I never even heard of Deezer. How many of them are there? I know all that that's like the holy grail of streaming services though. And and getting paid. They want to we want to get you paid for your music. That's huge because a lot of bands go broke before they get big. But DistroKid collects earnings and payments and sends 100% of these earnings to artists minus banking fees and applicable taxes. And that's just one of the tons of benefits of using DistroKid. You can send big files to anyone with their instant share feature. You can use the hyperfollow feature to promote your release and get pre-saves on your song. You can even create personal landing pages for yourself, your band, your brand, and whatever you like. It has a free Spotify canvas generator too to generate your own Spotify canvas for your songs. And the Mixia feature instantly masters your tracks for higher quality audio. So if you're ready, to bring your band to the next level, it's time to check out DistroKid. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Listeners of this show can get 30% off their first year by going to distrokid.com VIP slash the 500. That's distrokid.com VIP slash the 500 for 30% off your first year. Dig it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know what's, you know what's funny about, about this music is that unlike you, I, I didn't grow up around country at all. I grew up around like I was hair metal and grunge. Country didn't make its way into my life until now where I'm really appreciating it through doing this podcast because the country I heard in the 90s was all like Garth Brooks what I love and you mentioned those artists like Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and Hank Williams that like country is as real and as truthful as NWA was to hip-hop do you know what I mean it's the most punk it's the most punk rock shit in the world original country absolutely Absolutely. These these guys have seen the real life. And, and you know, it, it was a, a circle. Like Jimmy Rogers was like the first, you know, and you go back. But he, he and Hank, Hank Williams, Hank Williams. Like, like I know I got to tell you a story about Hank Williams Jr. But Hank Williams Sr., he was in, influenced so heavily by the black blues singers. 
you know that's where he got all his uh, his uh, soul from you know all the you know all the great songs the great country songs that Hank Williams sang and and he was like a black performer you know he had an alcohol problem and he died really really young but back then 29 was old yeah you know so <laughs> you know, you'd seen a lot of like, back then you were an adult when you were eight years old like yeah. me <laughs> yeah i was eight years old man and i was doing you know if i had to drive a truck i would have drove in a truck you know you're like i'm working overtime but, on the jungle gym right now it's kicking my ass <laughs> like i just clocked i just clocked over 40 hours at recess but the country no country was pure soul pure soul because uh and, and or they asked uh, miles davis you know because he liked country music and and you know the jazz snobs you know they said why, why do you like uh country music and miles said because it tell a story yeah yeah there's a good story behind everything yeah and and, and that same as ray charles ray charles grew up uh, country too he did a he did a country album yeah yeah yeah. It's just funny. It's just funny for it, how long it took me to appreciate it. So that's why I'm almost glad that Graham has come into my life after doing, because so far on the podcast, we've done Loretta Lynn. We've done Merle Haggard. We've done, oh, fuck, what is his name? Steve Earle. I mean, we've done Bonnie, early Bonnie Raitt. So this, so I feel like at this point now, digging into a record like Grievous Angel it's like something that I can appreciate now. Now, yeah. truth be told, Tommy, truth be told, when I first listened to this, I was not really feeling it. I just was like, OK, this is whatever. And then I started doing a bunch of reading about how much of a pioneer that Graham was pulling rock and roll towards country. Right. And because yeah. you got to understand, I don't know anything about the Flying Burrito Brothers. I don't I only know a couple songs by the birds. So when they say he's in those bands, I'm like, OK. But but let me dig into him. And and I got to be honest with you, after talking to one of my writers, it's just like this guy is so influential into the the direction that that rock and roll went into country the way there's no Eagles without Graham Parsons. There's no, no. Wilco. There's no Ryan Adams like just it's there's no big star if no. this guy doesn't make this record. No, um, I I also uh found out that this album didn't sell very well during the time that it came out. Uh, and I can understand that because sometimes an album and a style of music is coming in too early for what the masses are going to love. Like the Eagles really didn't pop till a few years later. Oh yeah. 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 You know, the weirdest thing when Cheech and I uh, broke out in, in LA, uh, Lou Adler had a, you know, he was connected to the Rolling Stones, you know, the Mick Jagger and that. Yeah. And Mick and his uh, then lady, they had a, 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 a you know, benefit for Ni the Nicaragua earthquake or something. They had some disaster down there. So uh, Lou got us on the bill with the Stones and Emmy Lou Harris at the Forum. And it was, wow. it, it, we opened the, we opened the whole, the whole show and there's like 19,000 people seeing Cheech and Chong for the first time and, <laughs> and seeing really comedy first rock and roll comedy for the first time. And, and we shared the, the dressing room with Emmy Lou Harris and the stones, man. And that was, uh, you talk about historical. 
it was it was quite a trip because there's there that was my life standing there there's mick there's uh, keith and there's emmy lou harris man oh what a what a what a thrill that was oh what a wow all right well let's dive into the record okay okay so the record opens with return of the grievous angel peter play a little taste I saw my devil and i saw my deep blue sea and i thought about a calico so the first time I'm hearing this, I'm just like, all right, I'm not really feeling this song. After many listens, that might be my favorite part of the entire record. <laughs> I can see why. It's just so great. It's just a nice <laughs> little country song about being lovesick. Now, a little some facts from it. The lyrics were adapted from a poem that Boston poet Tom Brown wrote with the intention of Graham singing. But... Ah. What what I found in the lyrics was this. This is my favorite line, Tommy. He says, the news I could bring, I met up with the king on his head an amphetamine crown. And which yes. led me which led me to believe that there is there a drug feudal system out there that I just don't know about. It's like henceforth on this twentieth day of the fourth month of the year of our Lord two thousand and twenty, the Duke of Oxycotton challenges Lord Zantac to a duel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song, man. It's I'm a great you, song, dude. I'm telling you, they had all the they they put so much into the lyrics, man. And you really have to. I'm saying, like you know, being part of a, a you know a musical life you know you'd have to go over and over and over the lyrics or the solos to to get what they were doing what they were saying and man i feel sorry for a lot of people that don't really listen <laughs> you know they don't hear they hear the melody it's good to dance to that's all they're doing it, but yet the lyrics are just seeing everything yeah, I don't find those those lyrics. I don't find amphetamine crown because basically what you're saying is because we know that Graham was a drug addict, uh, hit, you know, with with uh, with uh, drugs and alcohol basically are what killed the guy. So in all of these songs and to open up this record singing about speed, basically in in literally in 1973, not everybody knows about it, but he's telling the story of what it would be like to be out on the road. You know, you're yeah. on speed, you're high. So let me ask yeah. you a question. So sure. you're born you're born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but you grew yep. up in Calgary, like you said. What made you leave Canada? Like, was it a hard decision? Oh, no, no, no. It was the, the, the United States was always a big pull, big driving. Actually, the, the, the singer that I ended up, you know, that took, Turn me on to R and B in that he it was him. Uh, his name was Tommy Milton. He was a, a running back, a, a football player, and he was going. He was destined to become a big star, except he wasn't that that he wasn't big enough, and he hurt his leg. But thank God, and he wasn't that good of a singer, but he was a hell of an entertainer, and he had taste up the yin yang man he he turned me on to all the good music uh i mean we're listening to it all way before the stones way before the beatles you know we we were way ahead of them and and so he turned me on to uh onto the r&b scene and it just changed my life man you know i just knew you know it was real life and then to be a part of that real life so the states 
that's where the, the I, I was <laughs> every time we go to the States, I would end up in the ghetto. I don't know how well that did. We, <laughs> we went to Seattle first. You, you know, we got kicked out of the States maybe 15, 20 times. Fuck yeah, man. You're persistent <laughs> and consistent. But, but it's called uh, voluntary departure. You know, they, they'd find us down there working or, or down there where we weren't supposed to be. And then they would say, okay, get, get out of here. You know, just leave. And so, so it was easy, you know, back then, you know, you could come and go, but that's where all the music was. It was in the ghetto. It was down in the States. So we had to go to the States. Yeah. What year was that when you finally got down? It was in the fifties, 58, 1958. It was a funny story. We got, I started a teen club in, in Calgary, Alberta. You know, I was barely what, 18, 19, something like that. Just quit school. And, and then we put this band together and we had nowhere to play. And so I, I had this idea, we'll start a teen club and then we'll have the, I, I, I knew the guy that, you know, that dealt with teen clubs and that. And so he got us a, a, a venue at the Canadian Legion, a beautiful hall, with a great piano and a great dance hall. And so we packed that sucker every Saturday night for, oh, must have been about, three months, three months in a row. I mean, just packed Saturday. And it was so popular that every kids were driving from Edmonton two, 300 miles just to come to the dance. But the problem was they made us quit at midnight. And so then we had all these revved up teenagers with nothing to do at midnight <laughs> on Saturday. And so they would branch out into the city and create all kinds of havoc, you know, fights and yeah parties all that crap and so the mayor of uh, calgary and the city the chief of police had us go into their the mayor's office and i thought at first we were going to get a comment you know get honored for our, our contribution to <laughs> it's <society>. tommy chong day <laughs> yeah may 23rd they, they they said it's a good idea if you guys left town you know for wow for the christmas for the christmas uh week because the cops, you know, they were understaffed. They couldn't handle it if we were there throwing our dances for Christmas Eve. I mean, the Christmas Dude, that's holiday. Like, that's, that's the most Western shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, literally, like, the mayor had to be like, all right, y'all, we're going to need you to cut loose for a Yeah, yeah y- y- y'all got to get out of town. <laughs> and and he's no, he was known go. for giving out white hats. <laughs> he, he was an old disc jockey. Anyway... So instead of being upset, we were happy as hell, man. Hey, we're on our way to Vancouver. And so we went to Vancouver. And then when we were in Vancouver, then it was just like a a couple hours and we're in Seattle. So so it was perfect. And that's changed my life. All right. Let's dive into the next song. Okay. Okay. Next song, Hearts on Fire. It's written by Walter Egan and Tom Guidera. Peter, play 104. What could? I love the harmony with Emmy Lou so much. I, just gut wrenching, gut wrenching. Yeah, you 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 know what we're we're listening What's to? Up? We're listening to pop church. Yeah, dude. See that those harmonies, man. That's right out of church. 
I think I, I know honestly this song is what made me a Graham Parsons fan. When I this when this rec when this song came on a couple of days ago, I was like, okay, I'm kind of digging this. Now I'm listening to it just nonstop, and I fucking love it. There's a part in it where you can just hear them both saying, "Cause, cause, check out these lyrics before I before I go any further." Like this is the lyrics to the chorus. It's because it's, the song's just about getting out of a bad relationship, and I feel like it's said perfectly here, where it says, "Hearts on fire, my love for you brought only misery. Hearts on fire, put out the flames and set this cold heart free." <laughs> I mean, lyrically, I mean that is just gut wrenching shit, and you can hear it on the final "Hearts on Fire." Peter, play the final "Hearts on Fire" for me, real quick. Hearts on fire. Oh, yeah. The relationship's yeah. over. They don't want any more. It's like they divided up the furniture. They keep getting together to fuck every once in a while, and they got to cut it loose. That's what I got <laughs> from that final, final Hearts on Fire. Now, talking about relationships, and not that it was bad, but your relationship with Cheech, your act, you know, took a break in, what, 1985? When and how did your act get put on hold? Well, we we were clipping along. I ended up being the director. And then I sort of, it, it sort of, you know, when you're a director, you, you, you are, it's, a, it's one below God, you know. Yeah. It, it, whatever you say, that's what they do. Sure. And, and the first movie we did, I, I directed it, but Lou Adler took more credit than he should have and you know he officially was down as the director uh since after the up and smoke then all the other movies i ended up being the director because i made the deals and i had a a, a producer that that was sort of like on my side because i was the writer and the director and so i i i was on a roll but cheech was wasn't wasn't happy at all because we only did, did up and smoke it was supposed to be a, like a one and done, yeah. but the characters were so so popular that that there was you know a cry for more Cheech and Chong like there is today. But he he never he was very uncomfortable playing that Chicano character all the time because he like he that's that was just one of uh, it was like one bullet in his in his chamber you know he yeah. had a ton of characters that he could do that he would rather do than than the chicano so it got to the point where the last movie we did together was the corsican brothers oh i remember and love that his movie. stipulation was that he would not he did not want to do a, a stone a doper any doping in the movie which but did not make uh, uh the movie company very happy because the, the only reason they had us doing it was for the drugs <laughs> And maybe we're, we see in this scene maybe some bong hits, and she's just like, nah, man, no more. Exactly. Nah, but we just we really they... like, maybe your character just has a big joint all the time. Network that, notes. That's, that was a note. Isn't there a pipe or something in there somewhere? <laughs> anyway, Cheech was getting a divorce at the same time. Yeah. And so, so I was like part of the divorce settlement, I think. <laughs> because right after we finished, right after we finished the Corsican Brothers, he he came up to my house one day and with the news that he was going to do his own movie 
by himself, which was called Born in East L.A. And so, so, and that was it. That that stopped us. That stopped uh, our, the whole thing because he never said, you know, I I, I want to do this movie, but I, I want to keep Cheech and Chong. You know, I want to yeah. keep Cheech and Chong thing going. He just says, I'm going to do this movie. He's going to direct. And by the way, you're not in it. <laughs> yeah. You know. And so, so that was like I could take a hint, you know. And so that that, that was the end of the Cheech and Chong. Um, string of hits yeah but they were all great man they were all great all right let's move on to the next song uh it's called i can't dance uh peter play 37 seconds of it brother uh full disclosure i thought this was going to be the phil collins song yeah i really thought it was going to be the you know ah can da- Peter play a little bit of the Phil Collins song for me? Now that's a great fucking song, dude. It's a great rhythm, for sure. <laughs> dude, Phil Collins is the fucking man. I can't wait till we get to a Phil Collins record. My opinion: this song is just a breather in between the ballads. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Good song. Some weird lyrics I found. He goes, I can't dance. I never could. I guess my feet don't match. I'd get out there on the floor, but I'm afraid of hurting my back. Now, I did a little bit of research on this, Tommy, and he's only 26 years old when he wrote this. Uh, I don't understand that. So he obviously never wrote the lyrics. No, God, no. Dude, he, dude there's no way a 26-year-old has bad backbones, which is a hard thing to say, bad backbones. <laughs> he has the little-known fact is that Graham was built like a 70-year-old deli owner. <laughs> All right. Uh Brass Buttons, this song breaks the fuck out of my heart. Peter, play 204. The sun comes up without her. It just doesn't know she's gone. So this was written in 1965 as a tribute to Graham's mother, who died that year of alcohol-related cirrhosis on the day of his high school graduation. Ooh, yeah. Um, Ooh, that's. I mean, here's here's why this song just like tore me apart. Aside from the lyrics that we just played, which were, uh, you know, the sun comes up without you because it doesn't know you're gone. Um, it's like you can understand why Graham would have had such a debilitating. Uh, drug addiction. I mean, you know, his. I think he lo- lost both of his parents, but he loses his mom from alcohol. Both of his parents are alcoholics. He loses a mom to cirrhosis on the day he graduates high school. I mean, it just all make it just all makes sense. Well, that was a culture back then. You know, what do you mean? Just everybody. No, was just drinking alcohol, or? alcohol, and cigarettes. That was a necessary part of everybody's lifestyle back then. You know. Yeah. 
I always remember my grandmother, my Bubby. She died when she was 84, but uh, she just she used to smoke. And she used to smoke when I think she pooped. So I just remember, I just remember we'd be, we'd be at, at her house or like, she's like a, like a, a duplex in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And she'd have the door cracked so she could make sure me and my sister weren't getting into trouble. And she'd just be like, all right, you kids. And then she'd just be ashing between her legs. Like, just like that little, you'd hear that little, like into the water. Just like, you're like, ah, Jesus, Bubby, what are you doing in there? I got one. I got one with my aunt. I had an aunt, older aunt, you know, my my mother's uh, older sister, and she was an alcoholic, and 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 so we were the only family that would take her in, you know. <laughs> She'd pull up to our house and fall out of the cab, you know that that look. And then uh, <laughs> she smoked so much, and she wouldn't take the cigarette out of her mouth. She'd leave it in her mouth. She had a nicotine stain up the side of her face. That's how much she spoke. <laughs> uh, let me ask you something, because you've you've basically raised kids around the lifestyle that you portrayed in your professional career. What was that like? Well, I'm a bodybuilder from way back. You know, I started being a bodybuilder when I was 16 and uh, and I got kind of serious into it as opposed what? to. Why don't I know this smoking. shit? Why isn't this in my notes? <laughs> You're a bodybuilder, just all greased up and muscly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, up and uh, when I, when we did up and smoke, I was in the best shape of my life. I had a professional trainer in the valley, Vince Geronda. Uh, he he had a, a, a special on at his gym. Twenty five bucks, I'll make you. Uh, you know, I'll put you in the best shape of your life for movies. And so I, I took him up on that. And he did. He he trained me, you know. And so I never really, you know, all that smoking and 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 partying and that that was just for the movies, you know. Off off camera, no. I I I'm very lightweight when it comes to getting high. You know, one two tokes a day, maybe, maybe. That's all you need. That's all you yeah. need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah dude. I mean. People are smoking like these blunts to the face. I'm like, the yeah. fuck is wrong with you? Just <laughs> yeah, take yeah. a puff and go about your day, bro. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're a, a writer, you know, I'm a writer and, and you know, I, I can't function if I'm too stoned. And, and so I, I get a little, just a tiny little. And to the point where I don't, I forget that I got stoned. You know, things. Yeah. I'll, I'll get real hungry, and I'll go, "Why am I so hungry?" And then I'll think, "Oh, right, I smoked up." Yeah. So no, I'm. I, I was always uh, into bodybuilding. So anyway, I, I my my kids sort of followed my, you know, how they do, you know, and and so both my sons are, you know, they're good bodybuilders. They're not in the best shape now, but they're they're within reach. You know, yeah. And, and my daughter, you know, she's and my wife too. She's she takes three dance classes a week, and she's a ballerina. She does ballroom oh, and wow. she does tango, and so she's got an incredible body. And and she's you know a total health uh, eats totally healthy. You know, to the point where she won't eat Chinese food. That's how healthy she is. I'm on the other hand, I'm. Uh, you know, for my age and that. No, I, I, I'm, I'm a clean liver. I always have been. I, I, I couldn't do alcohol, and I, I, I couldn't smoke cigarettes. You know, I, I quit that. I tried, but I, I couldn't do it, so I quit. And the only thing, the only thing I, you know, you know, 
it was all uh, an act for movies. You know, we couldn't have done all the movies we did had we been as stoned as we no, looked at. God, you know, no. <laughs> we couldn't have done it. You know, or written them, or you know, done anything that what we did. You know, it's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello out there. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. We want to tell you about our podcast, None But the Brave, which is dedicated to taking a deep dive into the work of Bruce Springsteen. We're currently in our fifth season. Our latest episodes focus heavily on Bruce's 2024 tour and have featured such guests as Anthony Castrovince from MLB Network and Barstool's Kirk Minahan. We're also covering the 40th anniversary of Bruce's biggest record, Born in the USA. And as part of that, coming up this week... Uprock's cultural critic Stephen Hyden returns to the show for a fascinating hour-long conversation about his new book. There was nothing you could do. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and the End of the Heartland. To listen, you can go to our website, mbtbpodcast.com, or subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. We hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Next song, uh, another powerful one, $1,000 Wedding. Just a song about a wedding that went wrong. It was written about Graham's attempt to marry Nancy Ross, his ex-girlfriend that he stole from David Crosby and the mother of their daughter, Polly Parsons. Uh, This shit is epic. Play (laughs) 327, dude. All about the sweet child. Dude, that's that shit is so epic. Like I like did J.R. Tolkien write this song? Dude, here he goes. And he swore the fiercest beasts could all be put to sleep the same silly way. It's almost like Tenacious D wrote that song. It's got a very like it's got a very like, you know, uh I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Like not biblical, but you know, myth mythological. Yes. Talking about dragons and shit. Yeah. Um Let's talk about a wedding that went right, though. So you have this incredible love story. You've been married to Shelby for over 40 years. How does someone make love work in Hollywood? <laughs> well, first, first of all, she... she <laughs> I, she, We're not really... We're married... She yeah. did not believe in marriage. When I met her, she was a young girl. I was married to a, my first wife, Maxine, beautiful lady. And, uh, and the only reason we hung together, Shelby and I, was that I was safe. I was not going to fall in love with her because her problem was she's so beautiful that guys would go out with her and fall in love with her. And they, they'd want to, you know, they just want her to be, you know, and she's like a, a wild bird. You can't tame her uh, to this day. And so technically we're married because of the income tax. 
But as far as uh, uh, reality goes, no, no. She is a, a woman, you know, I, I, I really don't possess this woman. I'm lucky enough to live with her. I'm lucky enough to, you know, every once in a while she'll give me a hug and, and let me know that, you know, it's okay. <laughs> we'll yeah. keep you around. We're not going to put you down yet. But that's really the key. And, and, and like I said, not only that, but when, when, when Cheech and I broke up, I, you know, when Cheech and I were together, no problem. You know, I, she could come or go or whatever. I, you know, Cheech and I were there. We had, that was our life. But when Cheech and I broke up, I had nobody. And I was going on the road by myself, and I, I didn't like it at all because you got no protection. And so I, uh, I asked her to come on the road with me, and, and she, she was studying acting at the time. And then she goes, nah, you know, I don't want to sit in the dressing room, you know. And so I said, well, how about if I put you in the show? And so she, her eyes lit up. She's, oh, okay. <laughs> as long as she had a job to do. And so she's been, she, her and I did comedy together for 20 years, I guess. And she became a really, really good comedian. Not, not to the point where she was going to leave me and just go do comedy. But it's, uh, it's another one of her talents. That she's got she a 1245 do. spot at the comedy store. Later. If she she's like, I got to get out of here, Tommy. I'm doing the Laugh Factory late <laughs> night for 80 bucks. <laughs> no, but you know what? Her and her girlfriend, another stand-up comedian, when 9-11 hit, they were in, uh, they were in Nashville. And and they they had booked uh, all these uh, clubs to go, you know, to sit in and do. And even even though nine eleven hit, they show up at the club. No, they did. And, and the club owner goes, what, "What what are you doing here?" And they said, "Oh, we're ready to go on and do our show." And they said, "Don't don't fucking don't, comics, dude." <laughs> don't you realize what happened? They said, "Yeah." So what? <laughs> Dude, I did stand up. So I guess it was that Thursday in March that everything canceled. The NBA was gone, NHL, everything was gone. And the comedy club said, yeah, we're, we're shutting. We're only going to do one show a night, less than 200 people or whatever the, the thing was. And and I, I remember I got a show offer for, for Friday night and Saturday night. At, to do stand up, no, and, and that was those are the last two shows I did before they shut everything, everything down. But it was like they were packed, dude. Yeah, like people, like even even in tragedy, they just comedians are like, no, I'll go up, <laughs> and people still wanted to get out of the house, dude. We yeah. probably just we were all probably patient zero to the virus. Yeah, the end of the world's coming, but I got fifteen minutes, so uh, we we yeah, can dude. squeeze a set in. <laughs> But no, that 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 that's why we're still together is because we're. She still doesn't consider that her, uh, that you know that she's with me. You know, it's only temporary. You guys live together. She cooks for you. You hook up. You know, you watch Netflix together. But at the same time, she's like, I could leave you at any moment. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> God. Even when it, I love it. Even when I got cancer, you know, I went in for the operation and everything else. You know. Uh, Right then, I kind of felt, oh, 
<laughs> she, she's starting to look even better now. Oh, she's preparing for when I'm gone for the next guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That's so awesome, dude. All right. Let's move on. Next song, Medley Live from Northern Quebec. Uh, it's got two songs on it, Cash on the Barrelhead and Hickory Wind. Uh, now, here's the thing about this song, Tommy, is that it sounds like it was recorded live, but it wasn't. It was constructed in the studio with old audience sounds and friends talking in the background. Uh, play this. This is how bad the sound effects are. Peter, play uh, 234. <laughs> In South Carolina. I don't know why they had to add the sound effects like it's the movie Roadhouse. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like bottles breaking and shit, and it's just like people cussing. Oh, I remember what's going on with Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they did there, too. You know, They had the the, the Detroit Lions, and they, they had them in the studio, and, and they did a little party. And they did the sound. Yeah. Cheech and I used to do that on our records a lot. You know, put the party sounds in and sound like we're in a club, you know. Great songs. Both these songs are great. Yeah. First song's yeah. great. It's it's the first is a cover of the Leuven Brothers 1956 song, which leads into his own signature tune that he originally recorded and released with the birds in 68. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. Peter, play a little bit of Hickory Wind. But it makes me I honestly, if I could say anything about this record, the theme of this album is harmonies because him and Emmy Lou singing together is phenomenal. Did she go with him? Were, were they man and wife or boyfriend? No, they they were not. They were not in a relationship. Um, I I know exactly why he he did Emmy Lou because there's something about in country music a man singing and a woman singing at the same time. Oh because yeah, because you're yeah. getting you're getting both sides of the story. You're getting both sets of emotions, and and I honestly think it's it just country is a it's a very masculine sound, but when a woman does it, it, it's, it's like you can hear, we were talking about how country's punk or rap or whatever the fuck. It's like, it just, you can hear like the pain in their voices. So he, I think, I think he, he saw the shit that, uh, what's her face is doing Loretta Lynn with the yeah. stuff she's doing with Conway Twitty. It just sounds yeah. better. It just sounds better. Well, the whole the whole duet thing, you know that that went that goes through all the music genres, but definitely in in country for sure, you know. For a while there, you know, when when the guys were kind of ruling the roost, you know, the women were like uh, added attraction, you know. Oh yeah, so so we were talking about how they wanted to make this sound like they were performing at a roadhouse. Now, before the albums and the movies, you and Cheech performed your live comedy. At- at fucking clubs and concerts and all different wild places. Where were some of your wildest and most notable shows? Like what were some of the wildest shows you've ever done? Well, the one I told you about, and and that was around that time. It was 71, 72 when, uh, when she, uh, Emmy Lou Harris and and I, you know, and Cheech and I performed at the forum, but (laughs) we played in Columbus, Ohio. 
the 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 home of the soper. Remember sopers or quaaludes? Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. Well, this is where they made them. <laughs> and we we did a concert one time. Everybody in the concert was were messed up on quaaludes. Jacked up on quaaludes. Yeah, on, on <laughs> sopers. Yeah. And and when they went out. Everybody got in their cars, and it was like a bumper uh, rally, bumper car rally. They were banging, <laughs> driving slow into each other, the, one after another. Oh, it was a riot! And and there was everybody. It was like festival seating, you know, seating on the ground. Yeah. And Chief and I were trying. We're in the middle of a bit, and all of a sudden, some guy yells out, "Matches, matches!" <laughs> right in the middle of our act. And then a guy goes, I got matches. And, the, and we stopped our show while they got, they got together to get their, to get the, to light up a joint or whatever they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't even, they were so high on Quaaludes, they didn't even realize that you guys were on stage. They were no, just yeah, so exactly. relaxed. Oh, man. Oh, we, we worked under some of the weirdest. We worked at a club out in, in, in uh, Manhattan Beach that was owned by the Smothers Brothers. And it was uh, it was a beer beer club club you know where they drank beer, and the, it was so notoriously crazy that the Smothers Brothers they owned it and they never performed there ever, and so Cheech and I we, we would get hired to perform there because we had the kind of act that would would uh, shut the drunks down you know or, or they would listen and, and join in you know oh, that's great yeah we've had some oh. Oh, we we worked with in a pizza joint one time with uh, Carly Simons when she had her hit record, and yeah. she was on. Uh, she would do a show, then we would do a show, then she would do a show, and um, and right in the middle of our act, they would call out pizza numbers forty three, forty three, <laughs> right in the middle. Of, we'd be going to do a punch sign. Got large pepperoni. She's like, you're so vain. You probably got this. I, I, who added the double crest? Oh, she was That's she awesome. was quite a fox, man. Oh, and That's you know, awesome. just recently, uh, you know, Bill Withers died, but we worked with Bill at the Troubadour when he first started out, and we were there a week with him, and it was one of the best weeks I, that I can remember because he was such a cool, sweet guy. What a, a sweetheart, and very funny. He could have been a stand-up comedian. You know it. Every co every rock star wants to be a comic, and every comic wants to be a rock star. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill could have been a comedian in a minute because he had the stories. You know, he worked in Boeing, and he used to make uh, toilets, and he used to envision, uh, you know, Jackie Kennedy sitting on one of these toilets. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, Love Hurts. Uh, play fifty six seconds in, Peter. So Bow DeLow Bryant wrote this ballad that was originally done by the Everly Brothers in 1960 and became a hit for Nazareth in 1975. So when I first listened to this, I was like, all right, yeah, it's, I've heard this song before. It's nothing special. Then I, then I re found this little article about it, and I found this little passage. It says, Love Hurts contains a lovely high wine, a mourning, keening reach for the suffering in the song. Neither overdoes it. 
They feel the pain. They show it to us. They make us feel every bit, but never go too far. And their sustain on the final love hurts demonstrates how far they'd come together in emotion and technique. Peter, play that final love hurts. What does that do to you? I mean, because that that just crumplifies my doogles. Yeah, that's nice. That's beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Peter, just for for good measure, uh, play the Nazareth chorus. Love hurts. Love scars. Love All right, let's move on to. We got two songs left. Ooh, Las Vegas. So this is just a high-energy shuffle exploring the pitfalls of Sin City. And you also uh, come to find out that Graham's band uh, was comprised mostly of Elvis Presley's TCB band. Really? Yeah. Uh, Here, and there's some actually pretty cool shit in here that we found. Uh, Peter, play 216 for me. Well, spend all night with a dealer Trying to get ahead Spend all day at the Holiday Inn Trying to get out of bed what I found really funny about that was knowing about Graham's flaunting drug use, that line has a dual meaning. When he says dealer, it hardly seems like an accidental reference. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Spent all night with a dealer trying to get ahead, spent all day at the Holiday Inn trying to get out of bed. <laughs> it's a good song. Uh, it's a good song. You know, I'm not, uh, it's not my favorite song on the record. I'm more of the, a fan of the ballads on this album. Well, it, you can hear Elvis Presley's uh, influence, that whole rockabilly influence. Oh, yeah. You know, that do-do-do, yeah. Well, you know, you get that speed in you, and you're ready to rumble. You're ready to go. Let's do it. <laughs> you're ready to do fucking it. go, dude. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Ship Rock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. All right, last song on the record, In My Hour of Darkness. Uh, This is the last song, not only on the album, but it's the last song Graham ever wrote and recorded. And what a perfect way. Yeah, it is. It's a gospel-style song of faith and perseverance and a tribute to his recently passed friends, musician Clarence White, actor Brandon DeWilde, and drug buddy (laughs) Sid Kaiser. And once again, Graham likely drops in another double-meaning drug reference. Peter, play 309. In my hour of darkness, in my time of need, oh Lord, grant me vision. Oh Lord, grant me speed. Grant me speed. speed. This is a very big amphetamine <laughs> record. <laughs> you funny. did. We were talking. We're talk. We're talking about dark places because that's what this song is about: finding the serenity. Now you were in prison for for nine months yeah. for selling tobacco pipe products following some bullshit sting operation by George W. But 
afterward, you wrote a book about your experience, the I Chong Meditations from the Joint. That's right. So how do you find that safe space in prison? Oh, it's easy. You know, um, first of all, I was a celebrity. You know, so first thing I did when I when I, first day, uh, actually, Vanity Fair rented a, a limousine to take me to prison. Fuck yeah, dude! And so I, I rode to prison in in, in in a in a big old stretch limo, and then when I got there, uh, I was escorted through the gate and handcuffed for the first and only time. Just a symbolic thing that I was had to be brought in with handcuffs on. And then they took the handcuffs off right away. And then one of the guards said, uh, uh, I'll, I'll drive you over to the camp because I was in the main prison, you know, the, the gates at the main prison. And then the camp was behind the main prison. And so when I got in the, in the, uh, the truck to go to the, main, to the camp, he pulls out an album, a Cheech and Chong album. And he says, I'm your biggest fan, man. <laughs> so, oh, that's awesome. And so I, that's, that's how, that's how my prison time began. And then once I got, you know, settled, you know, in my bunk and my clothes and, you know, all that in, then I was invited outside to take pictures with all these Chicano gang members that had been waiting for me to come. And so I spent the first day, uh, like it was like uh, after a concert with all my fans taking pictures. And, uh, it, and that's the way it was the whole time I was there. I was like, uh, treated like a celebrity and, uh, and loved and, uh, met some beautiful people. And I had a great time. I, I turned it into a spiritual retreat, you know, because I could, because one thing about the camp, you know, it's, it's for old, you know, like that's where early Ehrlichman and Halderman, you know, that's where they did their time. And, and, and John Dean, you know, that, those types, you know, they, they're all in the camps and, and it's like a high end, uh, a lot of celebrities were there, you know, I, I had a really, really good time. And then I ended up meeting, you know, being uh, paired up with Jordan Belford, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And so, so my, my time was, but what I did, I, I got into the native sweat lodge. And so that's what I, you know, when I, it took a couple of weeks, but once I got into the sweat lodge, then, then I was, uh, I had something to do all week. And then Saturday we'd do the sweat. And so time went by pretty nice. It was, it was, I, I, I get no complaints. In fact, my wife had a harder time than I did because she had to drive two hours there and then two hours back. Yeah. And it was killer. I can see why you could treat something like that, especially in that situation as a spiritual journey. Did you, but you're, you're, you're going through this spiritual awakening in prison. Did it rub off on any of the other inmates? Like, did you also like, kind of like, well, I'm, I'm meditating or I'm reading this and like pass this information onto them? A little bit, a little bit. Like I, I threw the I Ching when I first got there, my, uh, my brother-in-law sent me the I Ching. And, uh, and I, I threw the coins and then, uh, there was another prisoner. He saw me, Mike, and he, he came over and he says, he thought it was a game. He says, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm throwing the I Ching. I said, do you want me to do you, you know, because you throw the coins and then it tells you your, your fortune kind of thing, you know, it's like yeah. heads or tails. And so, uh, I did Mike's, but out of, uh, you know, um, being, you know, uh, what do you call it? 
uh, utter respect. I didn't read his uh, his his fortune, more or less, and I I just showed him how to get read it, and so he read it, and then he handed me back the book, and then he went to his bunk, crawled up on his bunk, and he just sat there, staring out into space, kind of, and so then I had to read it. I had to figure out what what this fortune he got, and and it said. Him. Well, first of all, when I threw the I Ching, it said, uh, uh, the first, first, first line, it said, you are in prison for a reason. <laughs> Prisons yeah. are corrective institutions where you go to correct your behavior. And that was the first sentence of, of mine. And so when I read Mike's, it, it said that you had suffered a great misfortune. And I didn't know it, but his wife and, and, and the little girl was were killed in a car accident coming to see him a month oh, ago. Oh, God. And, and, and that's, that's, that was his fortune. And so after that, uh, you know, the, the I Ching was a, was a very important part. And so I would give readings to people that wanted it. You know, they would have to ask me for a reading. You know, I never, the one thing you never did in prison, you never... <laughs> got into anybody else's space. You just stayed in your own, on your own towel. You know, you just stayed in your own, your own space. And, and that was it. So it, I learned a lot. You know, I, I really, it was, it was very enlightening for me. I think a lot of people can go through that same experience now during the quarantine. Like oh, it's yeah. all, per, it's all perspective. This could be the most depressing time of your life, or it could be the happiest where you get to be by yourself and figure out who you are and like what you love yeah. and do the things that you want to do. I mean, yeah, not, it's you can't do you. that so much in prison, but I mean, you can't do everything you want to do in prison, but you know, for the most part, if you, if you know, you got nine months, just, just like you said, he's prison. You did something wrong. You need to change. Yeah. Yeah. To correct your behavior. And, and, and no, it was great. And then because I was famous, uh, I had to, do, uh, everybody wanted to do interviews with me. And so finally I, I okayed this one. Well, it was, uh, AKA Tommy Chong where we ended up doing a documentary. And so we, we had the, it was a camp supervisor, it wasn't the warden, but it was a camp supervisor. We took over his offices and now he's, he's like the mini warden, you know, for the camp. Yeah. And so we're shooting, we're shooting in his office and, and uh, we got a, a film crew and I kind of, it was kind of cracking me up because of the way people treat other people when they're, re, when they're filming, you know, uh, they just, whatever they're told to do, they do. And so here's a warden walking around. Uh, outside where we were shooting. And so I, I stuck my head out and it goes, Hey, quiet on the set. We're, we're, we're shooting in here. And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. And he started tiptoeing around. <laughs> That's great. Uh, there, there was a lot of, a lot of moments there that were, that was nice. And then when I got out, that was another, that was another very beautiful moment. I, I got out and in the, the, the prison is on a desert, in a desert, you know, and I could, you could see for miles every, every way. And there was a little grove of trees, and I was so curious what, what was going on over there. And so when we were driving out, we happened to drive by there. And sure enough, it, it was a little grove of trees where they had a, a, a herd of goats. 
And as we're driving there, I noticed one little little guy, little goat, had his horns caught in the fence, and he was trapped. He couldn't get out. And so I, I got, we stopped the car, and I got out, and I went and freed him. And, and my buddy, Josh, he uh, filmed it. And so it was, like, very symbolic. I got let loose, and I let the little little goat loose. So it was very symbolic and very yeah, very spiritual. Wow, that is spiritual. All right, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Sure. Ooh, some fa- facts. All right. Graham's protege, Emmylou Harris, went on to become a hugely successful artist after his death. Although they had a tight musical relationship which seemed intimate, they remained platonic bandmates. In fact, Graham wanted the album to be credited to Graham Parsons with Emmylou Harris and to feature them both on the cover. However, Graham's estranged wife, Gretchen Burrow, nixed that. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, they never did date. They were just uh, just working partners. Now, let me ask you about you and Cheech, because you had, prior to your reunion tour some years back, you guys had this long period of not working together. How and why did you guys agree to get back together? It was kind of by accident. Cheech had done, you know, movies, he'd done Tin Cup, he'd done everything. But he was at a like a, a valley in his career. He, it was going nowhere. I, on the other hand, was doing stand-up with my wife. We were doing fine. Uh, but my son, Paris, uh, he and everybody wanted to get Cheech and Chong back together again. So he arranged for us to have a meeting. So I went out to Cheech's house, and we had a meeting. And it was okay, but it didn't go, very, go too well because – by now, Cheech had, you know, became uh, Richard. He became an, another guy, not the guy that I knew. Yeah. And so we we had our, our falling out kind of thing, you know. Uh, we, we picked up an argument that we had been, you know, when we split. Because my, my beef was that, that, you know, every movie that I wrote, he was the star. And then he wrote one movie, and I wasn't even in it, you know. Was, yeah, you know, it was it was a big diss, and 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 so so we parted, but you know uh, it was nice seeing Cheech. I hadn't seen him for so long, and so I that day I think or that night I I, I wrote him an email, and my son kind of in, intercepted the email, and I, my email said you know it was nice seeing you again. Let's not be strangers. Let's you know hook up now and then. My son changed it and says, hey, it was nice seeing you, man. I'm really glad that we're getting back together again and let's rehearse and let's get a let's get this show on the road. Wow. What's <laughs> up, Paris? It was my son that did it. And then he waited, waited until Cheech replied and said, okay, and he was ready to come over for a rehearsal. That that then my son told me what he did. And you know, of course, my son knew, you know, that we wanted to get back together again and it was just yeah. a matter of egos, you know pride sure and i had no problem going you know you know i had no problem at all you know and neither did cheech and and we we never really rehearsed we got together and and minute we got on stage it was like we'd never been apart oh that's great that's so great all right at his friend clarence white's elaborate funeral that summer graham had reportedly remarked to his road manager phil kaufman 
if I die, I want you to take my body to Joshua Tree and burn it. Now, apparently, his stepfather knew that if he could prove Graham was a resident of Louisiana, he would inherit his trust fund. Because I don't know if you know this, Tommy, Graham was worth, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, his family were, like, big and, like... Well, no, from his family had like money from like oranges or some shit. Oh, like they, he, dude, this guy, dude, the guy went to Harvard. All right, so oh. here, check us out. It gets even better. So, while Graham's coffin was waiting at LAX to be shipped to New Orleans to be buried, Phil Kaufman and his friends stole it with a borrowed hearse and drove it to Joshua Tree. They poured five gallons of gasoline into his open Kaufman and threw a match in it. After the huge fireball exploded, they were chased and eventually caught days later by the police. Although a cop jokingly called it Graham Theft Parsons, stealing a body (laughs) wasn't a crime, so they were fined $750 for stealing the coffin and Graham's charred remains were shipped to and buried in Louisiana. Did you know that? No. Yeah, dude. So they made a movie about this called Graham Theft Parsons. Uh, that's the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life. Oh, I've got to see that. i got to check it out. Now tell me this. What's the craziest thing you ever did for a friend? Let me think. Oh. Not, 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 nothing like that, for sure. No, no. (laughs) the only, the craziest, well, my, my claim to fame was that I got, uh, I played with Jimi Hendrix one time. He, he, he saw us, uh, that we were performing in, in London, England, and he'd been there. He was a big, uh, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's fan. And so Jimmy showed up at, at our gig at the height of his career. And he, and we, we closed the place down. In fact, the club owners had to pull the plug to, to shut us up. Oh, wow. And then we went and partied after. But the whole the whole party, uh, Jimmy stayed in the bathroom <laughs> the whole party. He never oh. came out of the bathroom once. He had bad diarrhea, didn't he? Yeah, I heard No, I heard something, <laughs> something to do with uh, something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, last fact Even though he was considered a pioneer of country rock, he preferred to call his style Cosmic American Music. All right, so let's get Cosmic here. What would be your most memorable line or phrase that we could beam into the universe for all to hear? Uh, Probably, I wasn't looking at his neck, man. (laughs) That was... That line always cracks me up. And Cheech. <laughs> it's so great, man. Tommy, this this was fantastic, buddy. Uh, I mean it okay, from the man. bottom of my heart. I, I, I'm i a huge fan, and to be able to sit down and talk to you about Graham and your life is just such an honor. So thank you, brother. It was nice, and and, and I got to thank you for turn, turning me on to Graham. Oh, my God. It's a really, really Listen, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice turn I'm on. so glad that my producer stalked you at a vegan restaurant and probably scared the shit out of you. <laughs> but what's good about all of this, not only are you now a fan of Graham Parsons, but you also have Google Chrome Oh, yeah, on yeah, your we're, Mac. we're all set up, except I have to... Have my wife come and show me how to, well, forget it. (laughs) How to delete it. (laughs) This is awesome, buddy. Thank you, brother. Okay, thank you, man. Take care.
the one and only Mr. Tommy Chong, a real Dougal. Find Tommy on Twitter at Tommy Chong. Find him on Instagram at HeyTommyChong. Visit his website for all things Tommy, TommyChong.com. And check out Tommy and Cheech's new app. It's called Bud Farm. We'll put the link on the website, the500podcast.com. Subscribe to The 500 on Spotify. Now, we just listened to Graham Parsons from 1974. This week, music director Matt Pinfield chose from a user-submitted recommendation, John Merchant. Listen to The Next Generation, inspired by Graham Parsons on the Midwest Blues EP by John Merchant and the Desolation Angels, featuring Ashley Youngstrom. The title track single, Midwest Blues, is streaming on Spotify. Check out the link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these artists or albums, we want your music. We want to feature it on the 500 website. Send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Bruce Springsteen week as we dive into his 2002 album, The Rising. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Dougal, Dougal, my true dukes. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Next Chapter Podcasts.